Thanks, Cody, because I do relish the opportunity to, to worship God in preaching the word. And, and uh, this is a really beautiful text to be able to preach. It really is. Um, but I must confess, I was thinking to share with this uh, earlier this morning after hearing him preach it. When I first uh, was given this text by Cody to preach, I read through it, um, and I was a little, the word disappointed isn't quite right. Because I think it was just that, man, this is sort of all old news for everybody. You know, it talks about redemption and forgiveness, and this is stuff for Christians, we know what this sort of stuff is. And, and I was actually a little unaffected by it on my first reading. What interesting thing am I going to be able to pull out of this? And, man, what, what a terrible thing to share as a preacher. As I read my text for the first time, but the more I, I spent in it, the more I realised how much I really need to hear this stuff over and over and over and over again. This idea that God has redeemed us, forgiven us, and makes us his children. It's a really beautiful theology. So we could spend all day just relishing in it. I was really glad to hear Shem preach it. This morning there's a few uh, double-ups here. And so, uh, as much as that can sometimes be tedious to hear sermons twice, uh, it's wonderful for us to hear it again and again and again and again. I know I really needed it. And so my prayer is that these words would be dull, um, but this would really be made alive again for us as it was for me. As I just enjoy understanding what God's redemption means for me, I find myself profoundly moved and I hope today by the Holy Spirit. We will be too, so. So I'll pray before we preach. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing you've done. Words really um, fail me to articulate the goodness of your gospel. So I really just believe with the Holy Spirit that you would that I would feel by that we would be edified. And words that to to the Christian who grows up in church or has heard this many times before, we no longer be blunted with regular news, but we'll be sharp again as a two-edged sword that will pierce through to our own marrow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the text um, from verse 7, Ephesians 1, 7 In him, this is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is our text today. When we begin very simply, in Jesus. In Jesus, in the Beloved. The Son of God the Father is in Him that all this text is, is from and for. It's Him, it's about Jesus and His work. If you've been um, following along in the series of the sermon, Ephesians 1 is one big rambling sentence as Paul's heart just gushes forth praise and adoration for God. And we sort of see that in the first uh, part of it, he talks primarily about the work of the Father. This is really to do with the work of, of Jesus Christ, the Son, and, and then later we'll hear about the work of the Holy Spirit, their distinct roles in the Trinity and how they act and operate. And again, it's very easy for us to just hear in Him, in Jesus, and uh, become sort of numb to that, numb to who He is, 
But really, who is Jesus? Our answer to that question and our understanding of who he is has a profound significance on the trajectory of our life, who we understand him to be and believe him to be. It's the fundamental decision that we must essentially make that determines everything else that will come up. And when it comes to reading scripture, many in the church have been taught, whether intentionally or not, I, I, I hope that it's unintentionally, whether intentionally or not, being taught to read ourselves into scripture. You know, uh, how does this apply to me? You know, what, what character am I in this story? Um, how can I apply this to my life? What's the principle here that, that I get out of it? You know, we taught that um, we can emulate the faith of David or that the Bible is a handbook to life and you can pick out the gems, you know. While the Bible will reveal to us how to live and act in this world, it should be said that it is not a book about us. This is a, a collection of works that point to the person and work of Jesus that is found on his life, death, and resurrection, and then all the effect that it's had since. And our confusing of the primary character of the Bible, our making it so much about us, I think comes from a worldview that puts us, puts us at the centre of the world. It's the sort of worldview that promotes the phrase, like, I just need to find myself, I just need to be true to myself, I just need to discover my purpose in life, my meaning. Our culture tells us today, essentially, that we can find everything in ourselves, that we are the source of life and meaning and purpose and identity. I uh, was at a conference over the week, uh, not the Acts 29 conference, I wish I was there, my own work conference, and and one of the speakers was talking about this. He said he came across a person in the street who, who was wearing a t-shirt and stealing his shirt. The concept is good. And this person's shirt read, um, Alice is my religion. You know, we've got an Alice in the room. But uh, I think she, her name was Alice. And he felt compelled enough to stop her and say, what, what do you mean by that? She said, well, I am, I am my own religion. I am the centre of my universe. A profound... Um, there's profound implications for that. To consider that we are the, we can only find ourselves and express our true selves if we go deeper and deeper into ourselves. But the Bible teaches me, reveals to me, and, and I know it to be true myself, that if I look to myself, if we look to ourselves, we will not like what we see. It leads to all sorts of dysfunction, both personally and societally, and I truly believe that what Ephesians 1 will teach us is a holy irony that as we stop looking at ourselves for our source of identity and purpose and meaning, that we will actually find everything we need as we step away outside of ourselves into Christ alone. It is in Him alone that we will find our identity, the resource and means by which we can live in this life, and, and the purpose of it ultimately. We will never find it in ourselves. And so, it's good for us to remember that as we read the scripture, that we are not the central character of it. And in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption. This beautiful word that had been so blunted to me by its regular use. We hear it enough, and as I said, it loses its meaning, but we should consider it for what it means. We call Jesus our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. We should. We often 
use the word redemption or redeemed synonymously with salvation, it is all those things. But it has very specific meanings and implications. The act of redemption. Some of the earliest uh, language that we see in the Bible of redemption, of this act of what it would look like, comes from Moses after God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's a terrifying and awesome account. Many of us might be familiar with it. Uh, they still the Passover lamb, the angel of death went over the houses of the Israelites, and the children of Egypt were slain. Read it in your own time. Suffice it to say that it is a terrifying account that the children of Israel were spared death because of the sacrifice of the lamb. And the children of Egypt were not spared, and they did not belong to God, and no sacrifice had been made for them. In order to establish a, a remembrance among the people that they would not forget this terrifying and holy act that God had done on their behalf, he established the law of redemption, which is symbolic, this purchasing back of the people from God, from a life of slavery to being called his children. In Exodus 13, 13 15, he describes this law. He says, Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son comes to ask you, What does this mean? you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh suddenly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn from the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But on the firstborn of my sons and children I redeemed by sacrificing so that they would not be killed. So every firstborn would die unless it was redeemed with sacrifice. And only those children who were considered the people of Israel would be children of God. And so what it means for us then that we are redeemed is that we are now called God's children. He buys us back from slavery to be called his sons and his daughters, given an adoption that would Inherit us an eternal kingdom as a firstborn son would inherit on the land of the Father. He, he calls us there as children, though we were once far off and separated from him as slaves. This redemptive act is, is called him saying to us, I, You are now a child, I see you as this, because I will redeem one that I do not count as much. The children of Pharaoh were not redeemed, the children of Egypt were not redeemed, they did not belong to God. The sacrifice was made for the children of God in place of their life because they belonged to Him. And the sacrifice has been made for us because we belong to Him. To say that we are redeemed has this significant implication when we consider who we are, when we consider what our identity is. We are redeemed because we are God's children, which means that is our identity now. No longer are we slaves, but we are sons and daughters through His blood. Because a sacrifice was required. The yeah, great reformer and theologian John Calvin writes of the blood in this way. The image of blood reminds us that Jesus is the great high priest, not entering the Holy of Holies once a year, but for eternity and truly, not as a mere picture. Jesus comes not with the blood of cattle, but his own. The high priests were sent were the ones that were sent to perform the ritual sacrifices on behalf of the people. Of Israel. Now we have to do this regularly again and again. Once a year, the high priest would sacrifice and go before God as this sort of atonement for him, this, you know, on behalf of the Lord. 
but you have to go again and again and again because the sacrifice was not enough. What Calvin is saying here is that not only does Jesus perform this act of redemption for us as high priest, he does not just act on our behalf, but he is the redemption. He is the sacrifice. It is his blood that has been still. And so while the law of Moses taught the people of God that a sacrifice was required for redemption, Jesus comes and is the sacrifice. He had to die in order that we would be redeemed. The fact that he was willing to die to redeem us, the fact that he was willing to die to redeem us, has significant implications for our identity. And die for us because of our sins and trespasses to forgive them. Meaning that every aspect of our lives that we're living against God, but all of us will be in slavery to sin, we live against His will and way. But that sin that so tainted us and removed us from God and made us slaves is, is removed from us. Not only does the law of Moses teach us that redemption of God's children requires sacrifice, but that the consequence of our sin is death, and all sin leads to death, death that a just God must live on. Someone had to die. We can see our own sin in the law that was given. We can see the way of God, the way of righteousness, but it couldn't make us righteous. The law fails in that way. It had been inviting the people of God for centuries to consider their sin, Consider who they would have been under slavery to wrestle with this so that they would know that they needed something more. And it points us to Jesus. Just as the law was given to us to consider our sin, it is wise for us to do this. It is wise for us to grasp the depths of our depravity, our slavery, our nature as objects of God's wrath so that we would be able to understand the fullness of his grace. But it is really hard to wrestle with our sin and to consider the depths of it. Few people do because considering these things, going deep to understand just the depravity of who we are is terribly, terribly frightening. John Calvin, again, this message could be brought to you by John Calvin. He, uh, he says that no one can, there's a few more of his quotes that are, no one can descend into himself and seriously consider what he is without feeling God's wrath towards him. No one can descend into himself, no one can consider his heart without feeling God's wrath towards him. And so while the world would love the idea that we can find all of our sense of identity and purpose and hope and meaning in ourselves, in our own hearts and in our own lives, that we can be these autonomous beings and make a religion of ourselves, the reality is few dare. Few dare to go deep into their own, into the reality of their own lives and the sin that is potential in them. You do that. Instead, we numb and distract ourselves to avoid these feelings, to avoid seeing who we truly are, because we know deep down that we are sinful, we are deserving of God's wrath. Consider who you were before Christ, or consider even now the depths of our sinfulness, terrifying, it makes me shudder. 
we can very easily see that and adapt our identity, our sin. But our identity now is as children, is forgiven. That is who we are. Children of God, made clean. Our identity now is followed with Him. We will never find this in ourselves. We will never understand this identity in ourselves. It comes from Christ alone. And so it is that great irony that when we look away from ourselves into Christ, we start to begin to realise our identity because it rests in Him. In Jesus, we discover our identity, not in ourselves. And He lavishes on us this redemption, this sacrifice, the forgiveness of our sins is lavished on us according to the riches of His grace. And so while it is wise for us to consider for a moment our sin and how loathsome it is to God, but we are objects of His wrath, we, we should soon remind ourselves of how dearly we are loved by Him. St. Augustine writes that the hate and love of God should be whole intention like two sides of the same coin. And he says this, He, God, we have to at the same time hate in each one of us what He has made, uh, what we have made, he has learned that the same, he knows that at the same time, he hate in each one of us what we have made and to love what he has made. See, we, we are created huge bearers of God. And in Romans 5 8, he assures us that God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, he didn't wait for us to, to come clean. He saw us and knew us before the beginning of time and decided that he would die for us. And so while we are objects of his wrath, we are also objects of his love, mercy, grace, which he has lavished upon us. Grace that is completely unmerited and undeserved as we were his enemies in sin. And now is poured out richly, richly. And it is a great responsibility for us as Christians to handle this grace with care and respect. Many we go on sinning that grace may increase. Paul addresses this in, in Romans and it's been something that Christians have had to wrestle with forever. Grace as if it's like this free pass for us to continue sinning because we've got forgiveness on demand. We know what they think so we can continue um, with excuse living our own way or in our own identity. Really. Every Christian must understand that the gift of grace which we have been given we are going to be disciples of Christ, followers of Him, is made for sustaining us on the way of Christ. And while it is freely given, we talk about this often, grace is freely given, and if that is true, redemption doesn't come cheap. It costs Christ his, his life. It costs Him His life. One offer of his, his work, the cost of discipleship. It's a something that before you read, concludes that grace is in fact costly. For us to make use of it, we must consider the cost of it, how much it costs Christ. If we consider grace to be free and cheap, then we will misuse it and continue sinning, as if it was just some blank check. Instead, we should consider grace as unmerited and incredibly costly if we are going to count the cost of our own lives and truly follow Jesus and die to ourselves through his The grace of God is a great resource which we have given richly to live out our new identity as a child of God and holds us instead as we follow the Lord.
and it is given all wisdom and insight. As I was reading this text, it's a confusing sort of line as in there, in the whole one big sentence of it all. Uh, and scholars are divided as to who it refers to, whether it refers to God's wisdom and insight. That would mean that it is not, Peter said that it is not an accident or an afterthought or a plan B that Jesus had to die. That this was always the plan. This was always the intention and it is wise and it is good in his insight. And we should not question but accept that this is good, holy, wise, insightful will, even if it is mysterious to us. And it could also mean that according to the grace that he has lavished upon us, we as followers of the way receive wisdom and insight, which we did not have before. That our eyes have been opened to who he is. And we receive these as resources to help us navigate the life and follow our way. And I think the reality is neither of these studies is untrue, and so that's why it's appropriate to share them both that redemption through Christ's blood is both God's wise intention since the beginning of time, and is also something we receive as spiritual blessings as Christians. Importantly, these resources are not found in ourselves. These are spiritual blessings given to us in grace, only found in Jesus. And it is again the irony that as we look away from ourselves and towards Christ, we find not only our identity in Him, but the grace that has been lavished upon us, the wisdom and the insight that we should navigate this sinful world on the way to our own. Not only do we find our identity in Him, we find our way of living in Him, not in ourselves. Christ, making known to us the mystery of his will. We find Christ as our identity, the resource to live. But how, but, and, and the way we should live, but, but what should I do? What is my purpose in life? Many Christians agonise over this question. Really, many people agonise over this question. What is my purpose? What is my ultimate meaning for being here? What should I do with my life? I've only got one life. How should I spend it and live it? But what we we'll always fail to discover this is we look only in ourselves and our own resources. And of course we will miss this. The reality is, if we want to know the will of God, which oftentimes feels mysterious, we don't have God like a man standing next to us telling us, you know, take this job, go this way, marry that person, whatever it might be. But if we want to understand the will of God, we again find it in Christ alone. It's the revelation of the mystery of his will. Christ coming in power is the revelation of the mystery of his will. And all scripture has been pointing towards Christ. It is what people have been searching for since the beginning of time, is Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was not just in one time in history, but has been there since the beginning of time. He was with the Father in creation. He was the word that was spoken, brought the universe into existence. In John 8, 56 to 58, Jesus says this of himself as he takes on the religious leaders' assumptions of who he is. And he says it with these words Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw my day. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus say. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to me. Before Abraham was, I am. 
before Abraham was. I am. I was before Abraham. They picked up stones to try and kill him with the same. It was so blasphemous to them that this man that walks among us would have been before Abraham, before the beginning of time. John 5, 46 to 47, again states this, but referring to Moses, he says to the religious leaders, Jesus says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus before Jesus was incarnate and walking among us. Jesus says, but if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? See, the whole work and the law of Moses that was given to him all points to Christ. Christ was in it and through it. And the Apostle Peter says of Jesus in 1 Peter 1 to 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, the Spirit of Christ in them, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That means that the Spirit of Christ was with the prophets. He was all through the Old Testament. All this is to say that Christ has been since the beginning of time and will be at the end. And he has been spoken of and known about all through Scripture from Abraham to Moses and the prophets. They all knew Jesus, but, but only as like a shadow or a dim picture couldn't be fully grasped, but would one day be fully revealed in the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus says of himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light makes things known and seen. No longer living in darkness, finding their way in the shadows, grasping it. Christ's Spirit, we see him now fully incarnate, the revelation of God's mysterious will. This is who the prophets and the patriarchs God searched for, and is who has now been revealed to us. We have his Holy Spirit that we would now see in the light. And all of this, the revelation of the mystery of his will, is that according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite in him things on heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection were the perfect revelation of God's will. Christ submitted to the will and purpose of the Father, allowing himself, sacrificing himself for many, so that in him all would be united in his kingdom. Submitted to God's ultimate purpose, sacrificing himself. And I was thinking about sacrificing and how in our culture we love stories of sacrifice. They're in our movies and our books and our TV and sort of stories about this. It's a heroic thing to sacrifice yourself for someone else. They resonate with us, these stories, because innately we yearn for Christ and we believe it is good. Well, there are two, two different ways to tell these sorts of stories. And they're subtly different, but, but have deep implications for how we understand Christ. Because we can become so saturated in these cultural stories of sacrifice that we begin to read them into Scripture. And it affects how we understand Christ's sacrifice. The first type of sacrifice story, and I think it's the more popular of the two, and it's typified in the Lord of the Rings 
Is there any uh, Lord of the Rings watches in the room? The character of Gandalf stands before a mighty Balrog in the pits of Mount Doom, and he stands there to face this demon, essentially sacrificing himself, allowing himself to fight this beast, knowing he would surely die, so that the rest of the fellowship, that Frodo, would be able to escape and maintain his way and fulfill his purpose and his ultimate quest to destroy the world. It was the sacrifice of one so that the other could fulfill their ultimate purpose and calling in life. This, this resonates with us as a story of heroism and sacrifice for another. They would go on. The second type of story is also in all of It's a deep book and has many interesting little stories in there. And I think he's the better of the two, though it is not the more famous of the two. And in, it, in this one, Boromir sacrifices himself so that the little hobbits could escape. Now, their purpose as well was to follow Frodo and the ring and take him up to an essentially to protect Frodo and allow him to destroy the ring. But so moved was Pippin, one of the hobbits, <laughs> so moved was he by the sacrifice of Boromir that he actually left his quest. Later, leaving the fellowship, when he met Boromir's father, Boromir started grieving for the, for the son that he lost. He submitted himself to that man, becoming his servant. So moved was he by the sacrifice of one, he changed the whole course of his quest in honour of the life that was given for his. Figuring that my life is worth nothing to me now, all that I had before is lost. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for that sacrifice. The least thing I could do was give my life in service of another. Leaving my path for the one of Oregon's. The second story, even in the book, is cried as uh, foolishness. You know, characters try to stop him from, from doing this, saying that he should probably go off and, and, and do something else. This is, this is madness. And this story doesn't resonate so much with our culture. In a culture that loves self-promotion rather than self-denial. However, I think this Going perfectly, it's, it's a novel, it's not a allegory, but, but this paints a better picture of the life of the Christian in response to the sacrifice of Jesus. Christ did not come to fulfill God's God's will, he did not submit himself to the will of the Father to die so that we could become our own champions and fulfill our quest that we're already on. His forgiveness is not some sort of self-help. I don't feel guilty anymore, so my shackles are now gone and I can do what I was always meant to do. That reduces the sacrifice of Christ to just some sort of self-help therapy. I can come to church, I can feel forgiven, and be on with the rest of my life. No, Christ died that we would be united in him in the fullness of time. That we would be made into his body, the church, and just as he submitted to the will of the Father, even praying in his last moments, not my will, but yours be done, our purpose too is found in submission to the will of God. To say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. All I had before is rubbish. My life was nothing before I had you. 
And so why would I pursue that old life anyway? Why would I bother going after that? It is meaningless to me. I will surrender myself to doing your will. Romans 12 describes how we can discern this will of God in submission. He says, do not be conformed, do not submit to the way of this world, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed with the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Submitting ourselves, denying ourselves, setting our minds in Christ. The specifics of our life are incidental. The job we do, the measures we pursue, the time we spend, you know, the places we live. Because in all of these things, they're all periphery, they're all secondary, they're rubbish, and you're being asked to turn away from them. Our lives are made to submit to the will of God, give Him glory and grace. The last John Calvin quote describes this. He says that when men and women willingly honor God's glory and acknowledge the world to be ruled by Him and themselves to be under His authority, they give evidence of true religion, a true relationship with Christ. Our culture hates submission, especially in Australia where we love a flat level of authority. Having any sort of authority over us is just the worst. We walk against it strongly. But in submitting to Christ, we find ultimate freedom. Because that is the only, he is the only one who wants our ultimate who, who in in whom we will find our ultimate joy and satisfaction. Ironically, again, as we look away from ourselves and to Him alone. Away from ourselves and Him alone. This passage convinces me of how beautiful God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ is. And that in Him I have a new identity as a forgiven and loved child of God. And that I'm not alone walking in this world, but I have been given grace upon grace, lavished upon me richly, been provided with wisdom and insight that I never would have had before. And I have been given a clear purpose in man to do his will on earth. As we await the glorious day when his kingdom will be fulfilled, Christ comes again, and we live for him in glory forever. Jesus, you are not only the high priest who works redemption, you know, sacrificing another, you are the only perfect one that was able or worthy to be sacrificed in our place. And you were willing even to submit to the will of the Father to bring that about. Terrifying that day. I rejoice in you so richly lavished in grace, I saw you. That we in you find all of these things. I pray that in my own life, Lord, I continually turn away from myself and the world and look only to you. I pray that for us as your body, that we will be a people captivated by 
find the work that folks tell us. But it is a costly endeavor. We find everything we need. It costs us everything that we need. We find everything we need. I pray this in Jesus' name.